Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see all of you here. Uh, It's pretty packed this morning. I like to pray before I start, so if you could uh, bow your heads and hearts with me. Holy Spirit, our advocate, our comforter, the one who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the same one who opens our eyes to Jesus so that we can see him with greater clarity. We turn to you now and we ask that you help us discern what it is that our Father wants to speak to us about this morning, and more importantly, help us to not just be hearers of your word, but also be doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch pastor, a theologian, journalist, scholar, educator, and also an active politician who eventually became the Prime Minister of Netherlands. He was a brave advocate for equality, regardless of one's social status, race, or gender, during a period when that notion was not the overwhelming sentiment of the day. He sought to understand and engage culture uh, through Christian worldview. He was famous for this assertion that there is not an inch in any sphere of life which Jesus does not say, mine. I want to begin my talk this morning with a poem he wrote. I've never done this before. I should say I'm not a lover of poems, and that's because I often don't get its meanings. You know, I missed out, miss out on its meanings, but Kuiper's poem, I get. He writes, I'm not sent a pilgrim here, my heart with earth to fill, but I'm here, God's grace to learn and serve God's sovereign will. He leads me on through smiles and tears, grief follows, gladness still. But let me welcome both alike, since both work out his will. No service in itself is small, none great, though earth it fill, but that is small that seeks his own, and great that seeks God's will. Then hold my hand, most gracious Lord, guide all my doings still, and let this be my life's one aim, to do or bear thy will. This poem is essentially about pursuing Jesus wholeheartedly, going all the way, no matter what the cost. And that is our primary consideration as we continue uh, with our talks based on the Gospel of Mark. And our passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 3, verse 7, going all the way to verse 35. And the title of my talk is, Are You With Me? Are you with me, says the Lord. In the first six verses of our text, Mark is giving us a snapshot of Jesus' ministry, which consists of teaching, healing the sick, and casting out evil spirits from people oppressed by them. The crowds, we're told, are getting bigger and bigger, something that Mark emphasizes in verse 7 and verse 8. These people are not just coming from Galilee, the most densely populated area in the Middle East at the time, but from Judea and beyond. These people come from all walks of life. Some are curious about his teachings, but many are seeking his healing powers. In a world where medical skills are primitive, a bona fide supernatural healer 
will do, and most certainly would garner a huge following. The Pharisees, an influential conservative religious group, and the Herodian supporters and sympathizers of Herod's cause, the same Herod who had John the Baptist uh, arrested and beheaded, are not happy. When Jesus' surging popularity threatened to undermine their leverage with the crowds, they conspired to kill Jesus. An odd and a very unexpected alliance, given that they were enemies. Yeah, Herodians favored submission to Herod, and therefore to Rome for political expediency, because Herod worked for the Romans. While the Pharisees wanted Jewish independence, and therefore regarded the Herodians as traitors. But as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In response to their threat, Jesus returns to the lake with his disciples. But wherever Jesus goes, the crowds are there. Jesus and his disciples are completely overrun with people seeking healing and exorcism from evil spirits. And after doing a workplace health and safety risk assessment, Jesus tells his disciples to get a small boat so that they could continue their ministry safely. Verses 13 to 19, the scene suddenly shifts from the busyness of the lake to the quietness of the mountain. He summons 12 people, very flawed people like you and I, that he had handpicked to go up to the mountain with him, and there he appoints them to be a part of his community of followers. We see here that discipleship is not primarily about what the disciples can do for Jesus, but in what Jesus can make of them, because the verb appoint actually means to create, to bring into existence. The verb is the same as that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So it is quite conceivable that Mark is deliberately recalling the lines of Genesis. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, implying that the twelve are a new creation under the new covenant that he's about to establish through his death and resurrection. But what's indisputable in the appointment of the twelve is that every Jew in Jesus' days knew that there were 12 tribes in Israel and that they had been lost. And the prophets of old had spoken of a coming restoration of these 12 tribes. A great many of Jews were longing for this day. So there's no question that the 12 apostles corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel with Jesus standing over them as leader. This is no outreach team or mission team that Jesus is assembling and cobbling together. In Mark's gospel, mountains are sites of significant junctures in Jesus' ministry and revelation. It was uh, the same in the New Old Testament where mountains were frequently associated with God's presence and revelation. So, thus, Jesus going up to the mountain to appoint the twelve is reminiscent of, G of Moses giving out, going up to Mount Sinai to receive and transmitting the Ten Commandments. There's simply no way that people who read the book of Mark could have missed what Jesus was doing here. This is new wineskin for new wine. Implicit also in this appointment of, is the renunciation 
of the powers that be in Jerusalem. The mission of the 12th is threefold. One, to be with Jesus, and we will come back to this later. To be with Jesus, to follow Jesus. The second a part of the mission is to extend Jesus' work through preaching. And then thirdly, they were to drive out demons from people oppressed by them. This is not limited to exorcism. It's the authority to confront and reverse evil that enslaves wherever it is found. The authority to change lives and make a difference wherever we are, through whatever resources God has given us. Then Jesus, after this, goes into a house again. And again, a crowd is there. And the only house mentioned thus far is Peter's house. In chapter 1, verse 29 in Capernaum, in the site where the paralytic was healed. So this may be Mark's intent. The crowd is so large, there's simply no room for Jesus and his disciples to even eat. Mark tells us that at this time, two groups of people came onto the scene, essentially to shut Jesus down, to confront Jesus and to shut him down. The first group is Jesus' family, who've traveled about 40 kilometers from Nazareth. They're very concerned that Jesus has gone mad. They're very concerned. They feel like he's throwing his life away and that they've come to take him away. That's why they're there, to either salvage the family's reputation or to protect him before he does more harm to himself or even deprogram him. The second group of people on the scene is the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem some 160 kilometers away to defame Jesus and to destroy his growing movement by asserting his ability to perform miracles come from Satan himself. He's in league with them. That's what they were saying in such a slanderous, spiteful charge. And remember, these are religious leaders who had leverage with the crowd. So whatever they said attraction. He reproves, Jesus reproves both groups of people, beginning with the teachers of the law. So he addresses the teachers of the law first, yeah? Despite their vicious and slanderous charge, Jesus does not respond in kind by giving them a tongue lashing or routing them in a debate, which he could have done easily. Instead, he uses a parable with them. Verse 23, so Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against its itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Through the parable, Jesus points out a flaw in their accusation. Any civil war in any nation will only weaken it. It doesn't make sense for Satan to endorse a civil war within his kingdom. It only hastens his demise. Jesus instead identifies himself as the person tying up the strong man, that is Satan, and plundering his house. He's the someone stronger than me that John the Baptist declared 
way back in chapter 1, verse 7. The one who won an initial battle over Satan after his baptism, but is now making inroads into his turf, setting captives free from his power. And then Jesus continues with some very troubling words, words that I'm sure you have debated in your mind. What does it mean? Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. How many of you have ever despaired that you might have or agonized over whether you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? <laughs> have I done Have I done it, Lord, against you? And how can I confess? Because it's a sin that can never be forgiven. What does Jesus mean? First up, Jesus is saying at the most basic level, there is no sin per se that God will not forgive. Yeah, I remember the first, like, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven. That's the first thing we need to emphasize here. Secondly, the unpardonable sin is not something you can commit unknowingly, ignorantly, or inadvertently. Thirdly, the unpardonable sin is not referring to a category of sins that we consider really, 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 really bad. And we have those sins in our head, the serious sins and the not-so-serious sins, and then the unpardonable category of sins. Jesus is not talking about that. There's no such a list, and if there were, it would look very different from denomination to denomination and person to person. We get into a lot of trouble when we grade sin. Sin is sin, period. They're all sad, all sins are bad, and all sins are mad. Fourthly, we must allow for Jesus' use of hyperbole to underscore that the despiteful, uh, conscious, decisive, consistent denial of the work of the Holy Spirit and then attributing it to Satan is a really serious and terrible sin. Serious or defiant sin was often referred to as unpardonable in the Old Testament. Fifthly, don't overlook how Jesus begins with a positive in verse 28. As I said earlier, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Or in John 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never, never drive away. So if there is an unpardonable sin, then we're talking about people who are so hardened in their opposition to God that they will rebel against Him, that they will deliberately scorn, mock, and reject the forgiveness of mercy and the mercy of God until they die. That's what we're talking about here, the unpardonable sin. But if we repent, we will always be forgiven. There is always forgiveness to those who come to Jesus with contriteness and sincerity and a willingness to repent. So the unpardonable sin is speaking of people who rebel against God, who mock God, who reject God until they die. Next thing he does is he addresses his family. It's one thing to be opposed by outsiders, but quite another to be opposed by insiders. Those who are supposed to be your strongest advocates. Those who are supposed to be your strongest supporters. 
This would have hurt Jesus considerably. And we read his response to his family. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus said in response, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I think most of us, if not all of us, are okay with Jesus feeling hurt that his family would oppose him. But what we just read, his response is really something else, isn't it? Which seems to be quite shockingly caustic and callous, even by Western standards. Who's my mother? Who's my father? Uh, who's my brothers? Who's my sisters? Not them. These. <laughs> in fact, in Jesus' world, his response would have been considered nothing short of scandalous, as it would be in many non-Western cultures and cultures where everything centers around the family. Uh, Tom Wright elaborates, what's more, for Jews, the close family bond was part of the God-given fabric of thinking and living. Loyalty to the family was the local and specific working of loyalty to Israel as the people of God. Family solidarity was up there with Sabbath observance. In the Old Testament, life is used almost interchangeably with family. If you're cut off from your family, you're cut off from life. So given the significance of family, given the priority of family in that culture and in some of our cultures here. What was Jesus, what was behind Jesus' response that seems to diminish the importance and value of family ties? If you're sourcing wisdom from Jesus on how to relate to difficult family matter, members or resolving conflicts, I don't, I don't blame you if you feel like Jesus hasn't set a good example here. Right? Who are, my father? Who are my parents? Who are my brothers and sisters? It's them, not it's here, not them. Now, we should know by now that with Jesus' words and actions, is always more than meets the eye. Family ties are important. Before he died on the cross, he made sure that his earthly mom, Mary, would be taken care of by the apostle John. So what's going on here? Garland explains... Jesus affirms that life under God is not defined by relationships in a biological family, which is primarily geared for the preservation of the family line, its wealth, and its honor. One's ultimate devotion is owed to God, who is the head of a new divine family, and becoming a member of this family is open to all persons, regardless of race, class, or gender. The only requirement is that they share Jesus' commitment to God. When Jesus asks, who are my mother and my brothers, it strikes us as a rude disregard of the feelings of, the, of his family, but it would have been a comfort to those first Christians who lost their families because of their loyalty to Christ. They can be cheered that they are not without family, but have become a part of a greater family of faith. So that is what Jesus was meaning. That is what was behind Jesus saying, and it comes across to us as insensitive, but he's not. There's something else I've uh, never noticed before in Jesus' appointment of the 12 disciples in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. 
I read to us again. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. You notice that before? Have you noticed the, one, the, the line that I've underlined? I've not seen that for some reason. You've never seen that before. Jesus prioritizes and prizes his relationship with them and with us. That was their first task. He appointed them so that they might be with him. Quite stunning, really. Knowing we have been set apart by God must come before knowing that we have been set apart for God. And that's been our church theme since last year, consecration. To be set apart by God and to be set apart for God. And Jesus here spells it out very clearly. My disciples, you need to know I have set you apart for me, for fellowship, for friendship, for relationship. You've been set apart by me, and then you have been set apart for mission. I came across this beautiful song this morning, he will, he will Hold Me Fast. This could be a part of your application in addition to the couple that I sent you. Here are the first two verses of the song. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those who saves, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Those words lovely. Before anything else, before we talk about holding fast to Jesus, we need to know more that Jesus holds us fast, that it's not our ability to hold him fast that is as important as knowing that he holds us fast, even when we fail him, especially in times when we fail him. And that is the first thing that Jesus establishes when he appoints 12 disciples. I have appointed you to, not for a job. Yes, the job is important, but I've appointed you first and foremost to be with me, to know that I will hold you fast and that I will pay the ultimate price to demonstrate that I will hold you fast even when you have no interest in holding, holding on to me. I will hold on to you. Does that mean that the mission is not important? Is, does that mean that Jesus is pitying relationship with the mission? Not at all. The very essence of our mission is what? Isn't it to call people into a relationship with Jesus, right? That is our mission, to call people into a relationship with Jesus. So it wouldn't make sense at all that in the process of doing this, we neglect our relationship with Jesus any more than, a, uh, than it would make sense for a marriage counselor, a family counselor who's so busy educating and helping families and couples about the relationship that he neglects his own spouse, that he neglects his own children. 
How can this individual be taken seriously? How can a dentist be taken seriously when he's got rotten teeth? I'm just too busy looking after my teeth because I'm too busy looking after yours. It just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense for a Christian to be out and about calling people into a saving relationship with Jesus while we neglect our own. Makes no sense at all. Jesus doesn't want to use us. Did you know that? Jesus doesn't want to use us any more than we would like to be used. Does that make sense? Use me. God is not like that. He's not a user, an abuser. And that's what the crowds are doing. They're purely into him for his miracles. They're purely following him for what they can get out of him. And if that is our reason for following him, we will run into trouble. Because you see, right after the appointment of the twelve, the abuse and attack on Jesus intensifies. It's interesting. Put yourselves in the shoes of one of those disciples. You have just reached the high. You've just been appointed to be a part of Jesus' inner circle. He's chosen you. What a privilege. You've joined up. Uh, by the way, you've joined, G, uh, joined, you've joined up Jesus' uh, crew, not because of altruistic reasons. You're convinced that Jesus is going to be this powerful political leader who's going to deliver Israel from the rule and might of the Romans. So you're starting to think ahead about Jesus' new government and what cabinet position you'll be given. Jesus, Judas is thinking, I'll be made the minister of finance. Peter is thinking, I want to be the minister for fisheries and primary industries. And John and James are thinking, one on your left, one on your right. We want to be your chief of staff. Unheard of to have a cabinet with two chiefs of staff. But oh, fine, Jesus is doing a new thing. This is a new wine and new skin. As you're dreaming away, still feeling exhilarated, there's a brouhaha. The teachers of the law come labeling Jesus and by inference you as an agent of Satan. His own family thinks he is and by by inference you, Lupi, and considering checking him into a mental hospital. And that's just the start. There's more of that coming leading up to the cross and then when he commissions them to take the gospel to the whole world. What's the saying? If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I would be very tempted at this point to get out of the kitchen if I were one of the disciples, now or later. Mark wants his readers then and now to realize that our devotion to Jesus and being a member of this new family that God is creating is very likely to, to, to produce abuse rejection, scorn, persecution, all kinds of trials from expected and unexpected sources. His point is this, will you stick with Jesus whatever the cost? Will you stick with Jesus when the kitchen gets really hot? Will you continue being with Jesus, doing his will, even when you get nothing, when you get zip out of the relationship? 
And this is not a hypothetical question. And in fact, on one occasion after people were having second thoughts about Jesus and they were leaving him in droves, and you find that in John chapter 6, Jesus turns to his disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to abandon me now too? Are you going to reject me too? Do you want to leave too? And Jesus asks us, all of us this morning, are you with me all the way? Or are we going to bail out on him? And I don't mean necessarily abandoning our faith, abandoning Jesus necessarily, but retreating into a shell of comfortable Christianity where God is not fully in charge of your life, where you're neither hot or cold. You retreat into this safe space where you are in control, where you call the shot. It is one thing to believe in God. It is another thing completely to trust Him with our whole lives, no matter what happens. R.C. Sproul wrote, God doesn't want us to just feel gratitude, but to show our gratitude by giving thanks to God with our life, with our lives. The gospel is not ultimately about I, me, and myself. Keller writes, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. The gospel is primarily about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. God does not owe us a better life than we have. Instead, we owe Him our allegiance. The gospel is not about us. I repeat, Jesus asked us all this morning, are you still with me? Will you still consecrate your whole life to me? In ourselves, we can't say yes. It has to be through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And as we sing our final song, let's say yes to Jesus, no matter what the cost. Not I, but through Christ who lives in me. And for your application, I've sent it out to you by email. Listen to the song, Mercy, Even If, by Mercy Me, and then read Kuiper's poem again and pray it to the Lord. And then I've added the last application, which is go Google search, YouTube search, the song, He Hold Fast to Me, and it's by the Gettys. It's a beautiful song. It's a song you have to listen to. It's very comforting, but it's very empowering. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on the cross, we see, see clearly and vividly that you are for us, not against us. By laying down your life, you were saying to all of us, I'm with you all the way. I'm with you all the way. In times when you follow me, in times when you obey me, and in times when you han your heart toward me, in times when you're hot, in times when you're cold, in times when you're lukewarm, I will still hold fast to you. But Lord, that is not a relationship that we want to continue in an ongoing way because we know what it's like to be on the receiving end, to be on the other side of such a relationship where the commitment from the other side is non-committal. We know what it's like to be on, in a relationship where we are used, where people come to us only because they want something from us. We know what, what that is like, and yet we do it to you all of the time. We come to you because we have a need. We come to you when we, are, when we have a problem, when we run into difficulties. 
And when life is going well, we don't seem to show any interest in you whatsoever in that relationship that you've called us to. And we are sorry for that, Lord. And yet at the same time, we are comforted by the fact that you hold fast to us. But we want, Lord, to change. We don't want to continue relating to you like that where we use you. We want to say this morning afresh, we are with you even if we get nothing out of this relationship. Because that's not why we're in this relationship. We're in this relationship because we love you. We choose to follow you. So be with us this week as we consider the implications of your word to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.